Welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Center for Economic and Social History. I'm your host, Ben Schneider, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Mary Elizabeth Cox about deprivation caused by the Allied blockade of Germany during the First World War and the international food aid program that followed the conflict. Dr. Cox is the William Golding Junior Research Fellow in the Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at Brazenose College, Oxford, and a British Academy Postdoctoral Fellow. She completed her DPhil in Economic and Social History at Oxford, and her research uses qualitative and quantitative approaches to examine the impacts of war on civilians, inequality, and international responses. She's a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and a project lead on Hunger Draws the Map, a collaborative international research project that examines the impact of food shortages during the First World War. In the following interview, I speak with Dr. Cox about her recent book, Hunger and War and Peace, Women and Children in Germany, 1914 to 1924, which is available now from Oxford University Press. The book examines how the Allied blockade affected the lives and health of civilians in Germany during and after the war. She started off by describing the blockade that provides the backdrop to the book. So uh, the, the British blockade, or the Allied blockade, maybe it's a better name for it, you could argue that it started right with the beginning of the war. Some academics would say it actually started a bit later. Um, and that it depends on how the word blockade is defined. So, I mean, even in the book, I think I start with a little bit of an apology. Like, I don't know how much, how much interest readers have on legal definitions. But the word blockade had a very specific meaning. And this came about through the 1850s and then the, the Declaration of London, 1909. So... Um, before the war started, in order to have a blockade, countries had to define the blockade, the geographic area, when it would start beforehand, and it also needed to be what was considered a, a close blockade. So close to the the ports or the, the landmass of whatever place was being blockaded. And this mainly had to do with the legal rights of neutral countries. So uh, if there was going to be a war between different places, Neutrals' trading rights should be respected. This is kind of the main the main parts of it. When war broke out between Germany and Great Britain, of course, because Germany went through Belgium, which was totally legal, because Belgium had been neutral for some 80 years before the war even started, this then triggered a very rapid response. And as part of that response, Britain made a sort of a proclamation where they changed the types of goods that were considered contraband. And this, of course, had all been defined very carefully earlier in 1909. And so if you want, and they did that immediately. So you could make the point that even if it wasn't a legal blockade, I use the word interdiction of goods, which is, you know, playing with words, but they were interested in doing this right at the beginning. Other academics could argue the blockade started later on, say uh, March 1915. You have more of an announcement but whether you call it, a, call it a blockade or an interdiction of goods, right from the very beginning of the war, it's initiated. And, and the goal is to reduce not only food, but food and fertilizer and everything else uh, from entering Germany from abroad. Right. So we can think about certain things we would expect the British would obviously want to stop weapons, right, which were on the, the list of, of goods that, that could be stopped from going into a belligerent country. What were some of the goods in, in other categories that the British also tried to prevent? There are three different types of contraband. Absolute contraband are things that very clearly could be used by an enemy to support their war aims. So things that were agreed to be on the list of absolute contraband in the Declaration of London, so this is 1909, 
are things like weapons, where things can obviously be used for weapons. Other things are more ambivalent, uh, such as food or fertilizer. Um, obviously, civilians need food. One would normally consider this to be absolute contraband. In fact, it wasn't legally. But on the other side, military militaries need food. Soldiers need food. And that's the argument um, that some made in the British government to explain why they then unilaterally put food and also fertilizer on the contraband on the absolute contraband list, uh, and that and that's why someone could argue that the that the blockade or at least the interdiction of goods started very early on in the war because this was done very early on, 1914. Right, and so the, the Royal Navy is out in they're not close to the to the German shores. They're out in the North Sea, and then the the French Navy are in the so the western part of the English Channel, if I remember uh, right. Yes, Orkneys down below, right? Right. Nothing's allowed to go directly to to Germany and. For neutral countries, um, like Sweden, for example, um, they're also stopping those ships and then essentially, if I recall correctly from the book, checking the quantities that are being are being sent to those places. Is that roughly right in terms of how the blockade That's right. Worked? And, it, and bureau, uh, bureaucratically, it's, it's really genius because even though sometimes the neutrals were annoyed with this, they didn't want to be stopped, they didn't want to have these quotas, it was sort of their way of, of justifying why they had the blockade further out because traditionally... Blockades were only allowed next to the coastlines. All right, so then maybe we should also talk about, before we get into the implications within Germany during the war, what was the dependence or what was the perceived dependence of Germany before the First World War on imported food and fertilizer? Okay, so it depends on what sources you use, but roughly 25 to 30 percent of all foodstuffs that entered Germany were were from abroad. They, They were foreign. Germany also imported a huge amount of fertilizer. The exact proportion is not known. It's a little complicated because the same material that, that could be used for fertilizer could also be used for weapons, even before, even before the war. So they imported a lot of their food. I mean, it's interesting to note that other places in Europe also imported a lot, a lot of food. I think um, it should be mentioned that, that Britain imported even more foreign food than Germany had before the war. Um, but because of this, you have all these countries that are totally susceptible in a way that they had not been beforehand to, you know, foreign wars and blockades. Right. So we'll describe a little bit more later about sort of how the blockade continues through the war. But um, maybe it's useful now to get into the, the scholarly debate and, and why economic historians, historians, military historians as well, have been interested in the implications of cutting off this, say, roughly 20, 30 percent imported food supply as well as fertilizer supply into Germany. So what have, what have scholars said previous to, to okay. your work about this? So it's, it's interesting. I mean, the, the historiography of the First World War has changed over the last century, and there's been a lot of different interesting things that have been said. Um, there was a brief period of time when some scholars argued that one reason that Germany lost the war was actually because of the blockade. The, people, the argument went that the people were so hungry and frustrated that they were ready to surrender. Views such as this were were believed very early on or argued by some very notable people. So Lloyd George suggested this, at least half of the reason that the war was, was won because was because of the blockade. More recent scholarship, especially by people like Hugh Strong and others, argue quite persuasively that Germany lost the war in the, in the battlefield. But actually the blockade and, and whether or not German civilians were hungry had no effect on, on the end of the war. The military would have kept fighting anyway. Um, I'm persuaded by that. So. This book does not argue that the blockade is what ended the First World War in any way. 
But separate from this has been another argument, which I find more very, very interesting as well, that German civilians were, were starved during the First World War. And one reason why the argument has been complicated is because of what was going on during the war itself. So the Germans had a great propaganda machine, just like other countries. And during the, during the actual war, they didn't want to admit that maybe some of their people were hungry. Uh, and so you see all sorts of cheesy postcards about how great they're doing. And these reports published about how Germany can survive no matter what. But when, you know, the turnip winter of 1916-1917 was pretty bad in Germany. And even though the government leaders tried, tried to repress that from getting out, a lot of people were very hungry. And so, so the stuff started trickling out a little bit. But then when we really get a, a push for information is, is during the period of armistice. So Germany has surrendered November 1918. But during this period, the blockade continues. And many Germans had thought that the blockade... Uh, would be lifted during this period. So even when Germany, the German leaders signed the the, uh, the armistice papers, they pleaded for the blockade to be lifted. And Marshal Foch responded, you know, we'll, we'll see, basically. We'll, we'll do what's necessary. And so it's during this period where you get a lot of literature that's pushed out there where socialites, also German medical practitioners, are saying our people are really hungry, women and children are starving. They give numbers for how many people had died because of the blockade. Some of them I think make a lot of sense. Others were probably a little bit of an exaggeration. And there's definitely mixed motivations for this. And people see that as such. So the most obvious is that Germany, they were the losers. They had lost the war. One way to try to get sympathy is to say, you know, going back, you, you won the war because you starved our women and children. On the other side, there are people who seem to be very concerned. Germany has to go through another winter of 1918-19, another cold winter without foreign imports. And so there's a lot of people who are unhappy on the ground, civilians that are, are frustrated that they've just uh, in effect surrendered, but are still under the same rules of the blockade. So what's actually a physical, not physical item, but, but what, what something that, that is physical, whether or not German civilians were nutritionally deprived, turned into a political argument, right? So, so over the last century, off and on, different scholars have debated this. It came up again around World War II because food issues also came about and, and it was argued that the Germans had exaggerated to get sympathy. Um, there are others responded. I mean, a lot of historians who just are historians of Germany have argued for a long time that German civilians were very hungry. I would say more international scholars sort of see it as, as, I mean, this is a big, this is maybe summarizing, too, making the arguments too simple, but this, this has been the debate. And so I would just say what's, what's been a physical issue has turned into a political one. And it's been hard to do because there have been so many different sources. So you have German sources saying, oh, we're really, really hungry. But of course, the timing is just perfect. It's after the war um, versus sources that, where they say officially, we're doing fine. You know, we'll be just fine. And then there's also the question of, yes, certainly there were some groups that were hungry, there are people that are hungry everywhere, but was this a, a widespread hunger or was just just a few families or cities that had things really bad? Um, so I guess that would be the, the summary of the debate. Right. Great. That gets us towards the towards the point of sources and, and how we find evidence to, to actually answer these questions more concretely than saying, you know, there's this propaganda that these people saying. Um, yeah, because you can't just these weigh the different propaganda. Like, well, this many people said that they were hungry and this many, I mean, because it's just it's all over the place. So I use something called anthropometrics, which is 
a tool that a lot of economists, anthropologists, historians use to try to understand the nutritional status of peoples. So anthropometrics is just the idea of using the measurements, the physical measurements of people to understand well-being. The basic premise is that when people's heights are increasing, that suggests that they have a better living environment, so better access to nutrition, better disease environment, and when they're decreasing, that they do not. And over time, these don't always, heights don't always improve, they often change over time. Anthropometrics is really useful in, in answering questions of changes in populations. So the biggest indicator of a person's height, the big, biggest determinant, I should say, is their genetics. It's their parents, by far. So when you do anything with anthropometrics, what you want to have is a large enough population, large enough sample size, that you can be confident that what you're looking at is, is for a large group of people. So uh, a lot of anthropometrics has been used to answer these types of questions of, of, of well-being, especially in periods when other more traditional indicators, such as, as GDP, are suspect or not available. I was able to find several different data sets. One of the biggest includes the heights and weights of almost 600,000 school children from across Germany. And because the, the sample size is so large, it makes me confident that I can um, answer, address these questions in ways that are meaningful and not suspect to a single family or small, small area somewhere. Okay, so maybe you can let us, let us, our listeners know a bit about how you came across those sources and, and sort of why they were compiled. Who was so interested in why in measuring all these heights of? Well, this was a popular thing. I mean, measuring <laughs> measuring your height or or your family's height. There was a book published in Munich in the late 1800s. I don't have the exact translation in my head at the moment, but basically it's like how to measure yourself and your friends and your neighbors. And then what, what they had were sort of standard, what were considered standard heights and weights um, that others had made. So you could then measure yourself and compare yourself to this. The understanding of puberty, so the, the uh, adolescent growth curve, this big jump, had just occurred a little bit before in the late 19th century uh, in this country. Uh, children in factories had been measured as a way to try to determine their age. And so there's a lot of different things that are coming together to make measuring people and measuring children popular. On the one side, there's this idea that by measuring children, you can have an idea of their of their health. And this can be used for different reasons, so this is for social reasons. And then on the other side is just this idea that uh, th there's a nationalist idea too. So you sometimes people are comparing heights between countries. There's a sort of pride if you're taller. And then there's and then there's just this personal interest. It seems to have been sort of a sport, uh, quite literally. In Germany, schools had been mandatory for some 30 years before the First World War began. And they start, uh, I mean, the German statistical office, they they took measurements of all kinds of things. It's, it's, it's fun and interesting and a little bit crazy if you look at what they're measuring. This was sort of a movement. But anthropometrics comes in pretty early in the in the beginning of the 20th century as part of the assessment of children. So uh, a, a kid would start school and they would have testing done and they would also have their health taken. And as part of the health, very often height and weight would be included. So this would be uh, every year when they'd start school, every year following. And because of that, um, it makes, it made it, when I found the data set, I was very pleased because this was something that was done before the war anyway. It wasn't something done specially to measure deprivation during the war. 
um, but then was used, you know, afterwards to try to, to try to do that. The other thing is that German society was hierarchical. So even though schooling was universal, if parents had money, they would send their kids to a, a better school. And if they had a lot of money, they'd send them to a very elite school. And that means that you can, you can compare uh, children from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, in a way that, that's really fantastic. Lots of times in anthropometrics, which is still very useful, most of the measurements we have in the past are taken from conscription data from soldiers. But very often, there are certain types of people who become who became soldiers in the past, and they're not always the elite, uh, and they're usually uh, not women. They're usually men. Um, but boys and girls went to school in Germany. They had to go to school, and um, they they had their measurements taken as part of just the normal school year. Surprisingly, these don't seem to have been collected systematically by the government, by the statistical office, which made it a little bit harder for me because um, I could have just gone to a book and found them. Um, so instead, what I did is I, I moved to Germany the first summer after uh, I started this project and just looked in a lot of archives, looked in school archives, and ended up finding some, make, making some big discoveries in Dresden. There was a health museum there, and then also in Leipzig, in like the school opt, the the school bureau <laughs> office, uh, and then other places as well. So, so, so once I knew that they were there, I mean, I didn't actually know children had been measured, but I feel like if you're ever doing work German history, if you can guess that a measurement was that some type of statistics was taken, it probably was. You just have to look hard enough. So I looked for about four months before I first found the big trove, and I was very grateful to find them. Right. But it was a lot of looking at other statistics that I wondered, why did they take these? You know, But maybe they'll be useful mm -hmm. to some other historian in, in 100 years, I don't know. That's the, yeah, that's the hard work <laughs> at the coalface of economic history. Before we get into to the results, maybe a little bit more about the sort of um, what you're looking for when you, when you look at these data. So we can look at, for example, cohorts over time, mm -hmm. or maybe you know, there's obviously a lot of this has been done on the on the 18th and 19th century of um, impacts of the Industrial Revolution on heights. For what you're looking at, you look at heights over time and also velocity of basically how people's heights change from year to year. Can you describe a little bit about the importance of that? Sure. So I, I use the data in different ways. So the most basic ways is to look at um, heights of given ages each year of the war and then compare that to children before the war, after the war, modern standards. Um, and what you're doing is basically comparing average heights of children from one cohort to another and seeing changes. Um, and that, that's, that's really useful. Because of the nature was so rich that I found, I have, the, I have the same cohort of children each year at these different schools, or I can, I can assume that anyway. Um, so we should just say cohort would be birth year, say, 1908 or something like that. Yeah, and sometimes it's even divided, very often it was divided into like half years, so to the half year. And with that, then, I could, I could create these sort of, I call them artificial growth velocity curves, but that was just trying to be, I mean, I'm sure they're the kids from the same school. Uh, so how much change there is probably very little. But growth velocity is, is the change in the rate of growth that children experience from year to year. And like I said, because I'm using children, this is a really logical thing to do because what I can do is then see how their growth is actually changing. So when you add that then to, to total changes in growth, um, it becomes quite illuminative. So, for example, I mentioned earlier the winter of 1916-1917, uh, 
Um, if you're looking at heights, usually there's about a year delay when that shows up in a, in a child's growth. But uh, I can then look at growth velocity to see how that matches. And what you see is a, a massive reduction. And, and then when food supplies improved, when the war is over and, and imports are coming in from abroad, you see a jump in growth velocity. So the way that that would look on a graph, because um, I guess readers are not seeing my hands here move back and forth, <laughs> is that the the slope just inc increases a lot. That's that's an increase in growth velocity. And when it's a when there's a decrease, then it flattens out. It goes it goes lower, become negative even sometimes. Right. So the children aren't growing after they have this nutritional deprivation. Later, when they have when they can take in more calories, there's some amount of catch up, although not probably to the amount, that, the height that they would have otherwise been. Yeah, that's what I think a lot of <laughs> scholars say. So they, they're, they're still going to catch up. But issues with this is that there's only a certain amount of, a number of years that humans grow. So the later that you are able to get additional food stuff, you're not, I mean, you might grow a little bit longer than you would have if you haven't gone through puberty, but you're not going to grow until you're 30 or 40. So, so it's interesting. As a kid, you can sort of make up for it, some of it, um, but not perfectly. Uh, and then, of course, there are long-term impacts, too. So this is not my work, but I cited the Dutch famine. Um, children who were deprived very early on, even if physically they catch up, they're more likely to have different diseases like heart disease, diabetes, and more likely to die um, sooner. Right. This um, is at uh, the end of the Second World War. Yes. Yeah. And I didn't have the data to then follow these kids up later on, but it's, it's easy assumption that the same thing would happen to them. Right. Okay. And I should say children who are whose growth velocity is reduced, but that don't die. Because, of course, children who died, who died fall out of my data set, right? Mm -hmm. So these are sort of all biased downwards. It would probably be worse, I think. Right. Okay. So that's that's a pretty good survey, I think, of the methodology you use and, and why anthropometrics are useful. Taking the, the data that you have, and then also you, you use some, uh, a couple of contemporary studies that were done basically at the time. What are some of the, the sort of the general trajectory of the of the results that you have? How in, in a... From the, maybe from the perspective of the British, how effective or how, from the German perspective, how damaging was the blockade? Um, so I, I should just say very quickly, it's not only the blockade. Obviously, the blockade had a huge impact because you're reducing total calories. But there's also just the impacts of, of war uh, that are reducing calories in Germany. And also uh, the fact you have soldiers that are fighting that are away. Um, you have some really bad policy, unfortunate policy decisions that are made by German leaders trying to increase um, caloric production that, that fail. Well, something that I found that uh, actually I found quite discouraging is that before the war even began, so before any impact of the war or blockade, uh, there was huge inequality within Germany um, in terms of nutritional status of children. And there's no genetic reason why wealthy children should have been taller and chubbier than their poorer colleagues that were at the different types of schools. Um, so that was, that was sad to see. But what I found is that on the whole, Yes, uh, there, there was significant deprivation of German children. Um, and if you look at the data in aggregates altogether, this occurs really um, in response to the turnip winter. So it doesn't seem like on the whole, I mean, I'm sure there are individual families, but as, as a society, German children were not particularly deprived the first years of the war. That comes later. Um, and then once the war ends, there's this kind of slow but steady recovery. Uh, what gets more fun is when I then divide the the data into different socioeconomic groups based on the types of schools that children were attending. So like I mentioned before, there was already inequality before the war, and children who uh, whose parents could not afford them 
afford to send them to any type of school other than the, the one that was mandatory. Um, even though they're already smaller before the war starts, they are the first to um, suffer significant dep deprivation and they do so at the very quickest rate. So they ha basically they have the, they can afford to lose the least and yet they lose the, the most, the fastest. Um, and then you keep going up. So I have children divided into three different groups based on like, uh, socioeconomic background. Uh, and it's, so there's a, there's a step. So then after the poorest children suffer, then the next year um, you start to see a significant deprivation in, I guess I would say middle, these terms have different meanings in England, so I have to be careful, but children of, of middle socioeconomic status. Um, and then for elite children who are, you know, going to study Greek and Latin, their deprivation comes later. And, and that for me was really interesting and it, it also affects the recovery. So my data goes up through 1924. And what I found is that when the war ended, poor children were the first to recover. And also they did so at the, uh, very, very quickly compared to their peers. So poor children start recovering at the same time that the most wealthy children hit their nadir in terms of height and weight, which was a surprise. And in fact, poor children are able, were able to surpass their pre-war standards by 1922 and continue to do better. And this was surprising for a number of reasons. Germany has an entire new government. Hyperinflation hits a high in 1923. So you would not expect people who during the war had not been able to uh, access more calories to then suddenly do so much better. Um, and then that really led to the second half of the book. It was trying to understand these data, these results from the aggressions that I, that I was running. And it was sort of mixing the two types of sources. So we spoke about anthropometric data, but I also use a lot of qualitative sources. And, you know, a lot of the reports that I found um, after the war that were written by Germans argue that deprivation was worse once the war ended. This did not ring true when the data is all grouped together. And then when it's separated out, it doesn't ring true for the poorest children, but it does ring true for the elites. And when I thought about carefully who were the people who were writing these reports, of course, it, you know, it, the elites were writing the reports. It wasn't, um, it wasn't poor kids or their parents who were writing uh, newspaper articles about this or, or little vignettes to books. Um, so what I found by that is actually these different sources, they, they were arguing the same, th same thing. For the elites, it was worse for them after the war. Um, but that doesn't mean that it was worse for all of German society. And it seems, at least for, for school children that were poor, it was, it was better after the war than it had been during the war, which is interesting. So having disaggregated a bit, or quite a bit, by, um, by socioeconomic status, some of the, the data that you have also allows you to uh, look at urban and rural differences and um, what we would call intra-household allocation of resources. So who within, within a family you know, eats more when there's a when there's a fixed set of calories. Can you maybe talk through a little bit of those results? Um, yeah. So for Leipzig, um, there's a really interesting data set um, that was not actually discovered by me. I have to say this was discovered by Abner Offer um, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And what's great about this data set is that it's based on individuals that are grouped within family units. Uh, and not only that, but you're given the total amount of calories that were consumed by that family on average per week, per day, per week, and then the age of every person in the household and gender. So with that, I was able to calculate a number of things. So I looked at you know how many calories each family was able to consume, 
And I found that on average, it wasn't that bad. It was a little bit bad, but not terrifying. But of course, averages in a society which is already so unequal, I knew that before the war, poor kids were a lot shorter than, than wealthier children. Doesn't make sense. Because I also, I should mention too with that data, I'm also given their background, like the occupation that people have in the household. Uh, so you separate out, uh, separate it out that way, and you can see that there are, were a number of households who were doing very poorly. So the, the number of calories that they had access to covered around 1,100 per day, um, which is if you know if you're on a diet for a few months, that's okay. But if you're living off of that for years, that's very dangerous. Um, and other households were doing fantastic. If you had connections and money, then you, I don't know what they're eating, but maybe lobster. Cause I mean, you can see like the calories are so high. They just seem to be soaking their stuff in butter at the same period when other people were suffering so much, even, even during the turnip winter. One of the diaries that was a series of letters, I guess, that came out at the time was from a, a wealthy woman living in Leipzig. And she complained about being cold, but then also talks about these amazing meals that she was able to have with her wealthy friends. So there's this interesting contrast that way in terms of intra-household allocation. What I wasn't able to do with Leipzig is look at deprivation by gender and also by age. And this is where the timing gets very, interest, gets very interesting. So a lot in the qualitative sources during and even after the war, there were a number of Germans who wrote that, even German uh, medical doctors who wrote that German children didn't suffer too much the first years of the war. And of course I found that in, in the uh, regressions that I ran. But they argue that this was because many of the women had sacrificed for their children, many of the, of the mothers in speci uh, specifically. So I could test for that in Leipzig. And what I found was that women between the ages of 20 to 40, so I called these childbearing age women mothers, were by far the most nutritionally deprived. And to, to understand the deprivation, what I did is I compared it to uh, WHO. So they have what's called chronic energy deficiency measurement. And there's two different categories how this can be. I used both of them just to be safe because those change over time. Um, but I found that in Leipzig, you know, over 30% of women were suffering from chronic energy fatigue and their children weren't. But then what's so tragic is there's only a period of time when women can suffer that much and then they, they need to either stop eating or start eating more or else they will die. So there's a sort of different timing going on. So first women suffer the most, then their children eventually start to suffer, which must have been very hard for them because you know that they've been, these women have been sacrificing for their children. And then you would think the men, but actually the number of men I should say in the sample are smaller than the number of women, a lot of them are away. On average, they're, they're not uh, deprived. There could be multiple reasons for this. Many of them, if they're fighting in the war, they're probably getting better calories as soldiers. Soldiers were given preference uh, over civilians, so they're coming back and forth. But even those that seem to have been stationary, there's not a single man in the study that suffered from chronic energy deficiency, which was surprising. Uh, and so that's how I was able to get at this uh, inter-household inter allocation. So you look at it between households, this is why averages are not, don't always tell the whole story. And you see there's great deprivation between households, 30% are super deprived. But then with, within households, it's even worse. So if looking at the average and 30% of, of, of households are deprived, but then you take it and look at women and see how many of them were deprived. Um, it's just uh, astonishing how much, how much they suffered. Right. I thought that, that's a really striking section, um, I think, especially when you talk with the, the CED 
um, part in the effects of the effects of that. You also have some information, um, more than some information, but um, there's a, there's a chapter about data you have from Strasbourg, and you're able to compare urban and rural. And right. So so urban rural is 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 always a big question, and it's also been part of the literature for the past hundred years. Um, in general, it's really hard to find good data for rural areas just because they didn't have the infrastructure to do it, and there aren't always the big statistical offices. I mean, I was looking for rural urban data for, for a few years. And occasionally, I, I found some I thought, but then the German term was a bit ambiguous. It can mean suburb or rural, which is a bit frustrating. Um, but I eventually found some a study that had been done by a medical doctor in Strasbourg, and I was very excited. So what he did is he divided children into six different categories in terms of their wealth, which was which I kept, um, but also whether or not they lived in Strasbourg or in the countryside outside of Strasbourg, so in, in uh, Lorraine, Alsace, Alsace-Lorraine. So uh, that was very clear that I was looking at children from different from the different urban-rural divide. One reason why this was a big question is that within Germany, and I think a lot of historians have sort of repeated this, there was a lot of frustration towards rural farmers from the cities. So I would think that there would be more frustration towards wealthy people and elites. So just looking at the data, I mean, as I mentioned, before the war, there was huge inequality in terms of nutritional deprivation, in terms of heights. And during the war, you see the same thing. The elites do suffer, but it takes them a few years longer before they seem to have had physical effects. But instead, it's targeted towards, there's this urban-rural divide. And you have people in cities who are frustrated because shipments of food are not coming in, they're not reaching them, they're dependent on, on food from farmers. And so there's a real division between urban and rural elites. And what a lot of other historians have, have argued, and I think we need more research on this, again, I just have data for Strasbourg, so I need to be careful. But a lot of historians have argued, economic historians have argued that farmers were greedy, they were just making a profit, they had black markets, and this definitely seems to be the case for some. But being able to get actual data was kind of exciting, especially because there are parts of the country that are right next to each other. I mean, I'm looking at Strasbourg and right next to it. So even though you can control for this and modeling, it's it's nice when you don't have to make those controls when it's already there. So anyway, before the war, controlling all these variables. So I've got wealth. Uh, I even have religion as one. Uh, and I should say this is only for boys, by the way, which is disappoint disappointing. But looking at schoolboys, the biggest determinant of a kid's height is their wealth. It's how much money they had. And it has nothing to do with urban-rural difference. Uh, and there are slight differences, but those go away when you control for wealth. And then the same doctor measured these same schoolboys after the war. And there are changes, but urban-rural differences are completely explained away once you control for wealth. And really, that makes the most sense. Yes, there were definitely wealthy rural farmers who I'm sure made a lot of money from selling uh, food on the black market and doing illegal activity. But there were many who could not. And this actually fits, if you look closely, some of the laws that were in place. There were laws, for example, in southern Germany that millers could only grind a certain amount of grain for a family. And if they didn't follow those rules, then they could be shut down or fined a great amount of money. So if you're a poor farmer, you don't have the access to bribe the miller, even if you wanted to, even if the miller was willing to do that. If you're wealthy, you probably do. Also, the military, which again took precedence over civilian requirements for foodstuffs, they could come in and requisition food, no problem. Uh, and so if you look at it that way, what you actually have are two groups 
that are both suffering a great deal. But I think this fits in with the argument that when people are really hungry, they can become obsessed with food and they think of the other as having more than them. This is work done, um, again, World War II by other scholars. They, they starved men. I don't want to go into this too much, but it's just, it's just fascinating. And they took a group of would-be soldiers who didn't want to fight for different reasons, perhaps religious or just they were pacifist. They volunteered to be starved and to be studied while they were starved so that the U.S. would know how to best respond to starving starving people in Europe after the war. And and so the, I was interested in, in reading this report for the um, physical changes. This would never be done again, and I'm not proponing, I don't suggest that anyone should be starved ever, even if they volunteer, just as a quick aside. But the psychological stuff is also really interesting. And the psychological effects of starvation in many ways reflect what I, what I find in these urban, urban rural. Uh, if somebody's seriously deprived, if you're very hungry, personalities change and you become obsessed with food and you really do assume that others have more than you. Uh, and so instead of blaming the military, maybe that was too dangerous, instead of blaming the elites, I mean, sometimes they do a little bit, it's not, it's not 100% there, but the people who take the most blame are the rural farmers and they in turn are angry with people in the city coming in and stealing their food, hamstering. Uh, and so this is a rift that, that's there. And again, I think it's been repeated by many historians, but at least for Strasbourg, the data there, um, that, that doesn't hold out at all. Um, maybe it's because it's border place, you know, that, that could be, I mean, we could give some caveats, but I think what we need are more data sets uh, that we can use. And they are hard to find. It took me a couple of years to find the Strasbourg, but it's, just, it's, it's a fun little poke in the historiography. Right. All right. So let's m- maybe move towards, I guess, the, the latter part of the book, which is after the end of the war. So listeners might expect that after the armistice, <clears throat> there are no more hostilities and the blockade what is the Royal Navy doing continuing to blockade? And yet they do continue to do that into, into 1919. Can you describe maybe first just, um, I guess, a bit of the sort of politics about why, why the blockade continues? Sure. So the Germans did not want the blockade to continue. They were very specific on this. I think what I should remind listeners, I should remind listeners, is that food was power during and especially after the war. Germany was definitely not the only hungry country and Germany itself had inflicted hunger on many innocent people in northern France, in Belgium. So you have these negotiators from different countries and they're very frustrated. They see enemy Germany as a major enemy, which Germany had been, and Germany was asking that the blockade be lifted because their people were hungry, while at the same time they were responsible for millions of people who were hungry because of the Germans themselves. So it, so it gets complicated that way. There were others, such as Herbert Hoover and President Wilson. Hoover was, at the time, head of the American Relief Administration who and, and, and the U.S. Food Administration. They kind of moved during this period, but who wanted the blockade to be lifted, who felt a moral imperative to feed, feed, their, feed their enemies. So there's a lot of debate, but the blockade continues in force until after the Treaty of Versailles had been lifted in July 12, uh, 1919. It's partially lifted in April. There's a limited amount of food stuffs that are allowed in. This comes after huge amounts of negotiations and also out of a fear that, that Germany might collapse and not, there might not be anybody to, uh, to sign, I should say, the, the instruments of, of peace. Some historians, and I think they have good reasons for this, so this is a debate. I don't want to act like I have all the answers. I mean, I have my opinions, definitely, and that comes across in my book. But some historians argue with reason that 
some of the allies were afraid that if the blockade was lifted, Germany might try to keep fighting. You know, there were, so to just argue that side for a second, maybe I should be arguing for my book instead, but to, to see that side, there there were um, rebellions on ships. You know, some of the ships were scuttled. There was uh, just this period of unrest within Germany. And so there, there could have been, and there probably was legitimate fear by some of the negotiators that if you... If, 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 Germany, if the blockade was not lifted against Germany, that bad things could continue to come out there. And, and there are also some who argued that they weren't that hungry anyway. And this is, you know, then you get these big responses from German. On the other side, you could, you could kind of view the continued blockade as a sort of bludgeon to make sure that Germany signed whatever peace they were, they were given. And uh, what, what's sad is that the German, what I find sad is that Germans who had thought the blockade would, would end they went through an entire winter of the blockade still in force. And I wrote about it a little bit in the New York Times editorial, which you mentioned. And I can't give the exact number of people who died from that. I, I don't want to. I mean, probably from the, blockade, from the blockade, totally maybe half a million people died. The range goes from half a million to a million. So it depends how conservative you want to be who died just from the blockade. So not the flu, not anything else, but certainly a number of those would have died during that period as well. And that just creates, for many Germans, a, a feeling of unjustness and uh, frustration. And and even within the Allies, there's differences. So the U.S. is pushing through via Herbert Hoover from November. They're pushing, get this blockade lifted. Let's, let's get food in. But there were people who were afraid. Or I think, too, it comes across, fortunately, people who are vindictive, which is, again, understandable. Germany did a lot of bad things during the First World War. But, but again, it's not the civilians who did the bad things. This is, this is why, for me, I'm, it's more interesting to study the women and the children, the civilians. They weren't responsible for any war. And when, when food aid does start coming in, it's that type of language which is used to, to get that lifted. So Herbert Hoover has a slogan, I don't have any German enemies under the age of six. Uh, we've never been at war with women and children. And I think that went a long ways towards helping people to see Germany as, as worthy of food. And in fact, the food aid is targeted towards children and women. Most of the foreign food aid is targeted towards that um, because it was easier to feed your enemy's children than to feed the enemy. So it was, it was a brilliant thing. And, and, and that was also followed, I should say, not just by Hoover, but Eglinton Jeb. She again also focused, she was here in this country from Cambridge, and she focused on, on babies, on children. And that really, created a space for people to have empathy for very recent and real enemies who had who had done a lot of damage. And for me, it's just really compelling because you've got, I mean, we forget, but the world, the First World War was so tragic. There were so many people who lost loved ones, who were, who were in pain. And you've got, save the children, you've got groups in England that are sending food over to feed German children while they're still suffering because of what the Germans did to them. And the same with the United States. There's a lot of sadness. I think I don't enjoy seeing kids that were that were very very hungry and seeing the deprivation, the sacrifice of the mothers. Um, but there's also a bit of hope that comes through when you see the generosity and the responses that so many people gave. Not everyone, but many many did. So in terms of that, I guess the more the more positive ending of the of the story of the book, there's some great visual material. Some of the most striking of which is letters that were sent by children who were who were fed after the war. Can you talk a little bit about that, about that process? Sure. So um, when I was trying to understand 
this huge increase in children's growth velocity after the war, which was still a period of, like I mentioned, hyperinflation and new government. What I wanted were numbers. I wanted to understand as an economic historian, well, how much food was actually shipped anyway, because that's what really matters. I mean, there were a few places where people said, yeah, say the children, they were doing some work, maybe the Quakers, but there weren't any hard numbers. So I went to, that I had seen anyway at this point, I went to the uh, Quaker American Friends Service Committee archives in Philadelphia, uh, looking for numbers, which I found. So just as a quick aside about the numbers, the Quakers alone, the American Quakers were feeding over 1.1 million German children every day but Sunday at the height of their operations. And that's just, that's just the Quakers. There were, there were many other groups over there as well, which is a huge amount. You have a population of 70 million, about at the time in Germany, that, that's a lot of kids to be feeding. And they, were, they did it very, in a very sophisticated way. They targeted poor children first, right? So this is why we see this increase. But to go back to your, your other question, so I was looking for the numbers, I found the numbers, but what I also found, I wasn't trying to find, I didn't know that you know, beautiful images and letters existed, but what I found were actually thousands of drawings and paintings and carvings and embroidery that children had sent or given to Quaker missionaries who had fed them, and, and thousands of letters as well. And these were these are just so visually striking, I couldn't help but be interested in them. They were shown to me, I should say, by Don Davis, the archivist there, and I was I was thrilled. I started looking at them more and more, and then realized that they could also be used as a form of analysis. So I mentioned earlier anthropometrics. Children who were part of the feeding scheme that the Quakers offered were selected based on their nutritional status, which was determined in part by their height and their weight, which was taken at their schools. So many of the pictures actually have children drawing themselves on scales before the Quakers come, they're skinny, they draw a picture of themselves after words on the scale and they've gained weight. There are poems and there are songs the children sang about hoping that they would be found small enough so that they could be included in these Quaker meals. And it's just, it's just striking, They're their own form of, of evidence. One image that is particularly moving to me is a picture, I'll just describe it to the listeners, of a boy frowning and in front of him is a plate that's empty. He's got a little tear coming out of his eye and it says before the Quaker, Quakers come and he's obviously hungry, there's nothing on the plate. After the Quakers come, this is the similar type of motif, which I saw in many different places. His plate is full, he's got big rosy cheeks, he's smiling. And then next to that is an American and German flag. And above the flag is a bell, and it says Pax, so peace in Latin. And then below is a drawing of the Ten Commandments. And in Hebrew, Shalom is written in those, um, saying, you know, peace as well. And why this is so striking is that the Quakers were instructed to feed all children based on need and not based on their economic background, which we see because the poor kids are being fed first because uh, they were the hungriest, or based on religion. So sometimes organizations have high aims, but they don't always reach them. But because we have this information from the kids themselves, um, I take this that at least in this place, Jewish kids were being, were being fed. I don't think a Catholic little boy or girl would have written in Hebrew shalom on their on their drawing if they hadn't been that way. So so that that to me is is uh, is exciting and and moving. And then you also just see how children felt about the food. So many are really grateful. They're writing, especially in the letters. So you're right. There's a lot of these images 
um, of their drawings, which, which I think are beautiful, but there are a lot of different letters and the tone just comes out and they're not all the same. So some kids, they've obviously been instructed by their school teachers to sort of say something similar. You can kind of tell there's a bunch of letters and they're kind of all the same. And because they want the aid to keep coming. But there are some letters where you think, oh man, some teacher, I mean, maybe they were sent individually or given individually, that you probably wouldn't want to be sent through if you want more aid to come, where children feel really, uh, not, not grateful, but expectant, where they're voicing frustrations about the Americans. And you can see from a little kid's point of view, yes, they're not responsible for the war, but they see the Americans and the Allies as having inflicted this hunger on them because of the blockade. And so rather than expressing gratitude, there's a little bit of gratitude, but it's mostly sort of frustration and you should be sending us a lot more because you're the reason why we're so hungry. And I think this is valuable to get these different um, perspectives. But what's fun, going back to these children standing on these scales, writing about how they, they, they hope that they are measured smaller so that they can be, gain weight. A lot of times they write about how they've gained weight is that these are quali very qualitative sources using children's drawings and a totally different type of source than the raw statistics, the raw anthropometrics that I then use to make models, but they converge and show, and show the same conclusion. And for me, that makes me confident in my findings. I find that they're robust when you have totally different sources that point to the same um, conclusion. So, so besides being interesting, but, but they stand on their own. They're not just, I don't want readers to view them as just a little supporting clutch to the, uh, to the, to the models that are in the book. Uh, they're their own evidence. And I, I wish, I don't know if I'll ever have the opportunity, but in my dreams, I would publish a book of just, you know, a thousand of these images and drawings and analyze them more because I think gratitude, especially now, is a really uh, useful uh, gift and um, and they're very moving. Um, but I only have, I have 30 plates in the book that was, and I got lucky to have that, have them in color. I'm very fortunate that Oxford University Press did that book. Yeah. As you say, they, they make the statistical story, I think, even more compelling and it gives it, there's obviously a human dimension to a very literal human dimension to the answer of metrics, but it's... That's right, um, human dimension. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, pun not intended. But um, but yeah, it, it brings it, especially because the images are in color, a different um, uh, angle as well. So Thank then you. maybe we can just close on, on thinking through, you know, some of the some of the implications of, of this work. Obviously, there, there are a number of contemporary conflicts where we have lots of evidence of deprivation and maybe see how your your work sort of fits into those. There's so many things I could say. Uh, I, might, I hope this comes out not in a too, super jumbled way. So I guess the first way would be that, and this is not to dictate, pol dictate policy, but just to help people be more aware, we should be very careful when we use sanctions or blockades. We should be careful in who in our assumptions on who this will affect. So at least in the case of Germany, and I think other places as well, what we find, so even in the Industrial Revolution, even if it's not during warfare, but in times of great need, um, what we find is that it's not the elites who go hungry or who suffer. It, it tends to be poor people and children and women and those who don't have access to connections. So if there's a, re a regime that we, that we don't, and by we, I mean anyone, you know, but that, that we don't like, that's fine. And maybe sanctions should should still be used, but there should be no delusions on who that is going to impact the most. And maybe if um, civilians are thought of first, that we would we would use these less often. I mean, there's the argument that with sanctions, 
And this was also made during the First World War, by the way, by the British. You find some of these reports that they film in unrest and people are frustrated and that can maybe oust the leader. But again, who's taking the brunt of it? Until the very last grain, it's going to be the elites that are the, the last to, to feel those effects. So that'd be one thing with policy. And there's a number of sanctions around the world that you can, you can think of. Another one would be when we, and I think a lot of people are doing this, but just to underline the point, when we give aid or think about giving aid, we should think within society who is suffering most. And I think I get it that in house allocation, um, there's so much hunger in places like Syria right now and so many refugees that these issues could still be used there. And then finally, I would argue that it's very important that we actually take measurements of people that when, when we can, we, that we measure refugees. Because one issue is that a lot of times we don't even know who these people are. And if we do know who, who we are, who they are, we don't take any type of health assessment. So we don't actually know how, how they're doing. So these same studies that I was able to conduct could not be done for many people going forward for historians. And, and that makes it hard to even know. I mean, we need to at least know where people are at for us to be able to help them. So those would be those three areas, I would say, in terms of sanctions. We should think carefully about who we give them, who, who we issue them against. Two, we can use some of these findings, uh, I hope that we can, as additional evidence on where aid should be targeted within households and within society. And finally, we need to actually know who, who people are. I want to be careful, but there's some borders where we don't even know who the people are who are trying to come through. We lose them, and, and let alone having measurements of, of their health, any type of measurement. So that's a problem. Right. Right. Well, thank you for the discussion, both of the, the history and also the, the contemporary implications. For our listeners, the book, again, is Hunger and War and Peace, which is available now from Oxford University Press. And Dr. Mary Cox, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Oxford Center for Economic and Social History. If you've enjoyed the show, you can subscribe and find more episodes on Anchor.fm, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate positive ratings and reviews because they help more people find the show. Links to the research we discussed, including Dr. Cox's book, are available in the show notes. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter at OxfordESH, or you can email us at OxESHpodcast at gmail.com. Our production team is Marcus Chin, Victoria Girock, Julia Greening, and Raya Thomas. Until next time, I've been Ben Schneider, and thanks again for listening.